This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. For many people who have a great devotion either to religion or to art, the great enemy of both uh, very often is everyday life. Uh, So much of religion seems to be, or very well can be, devoted to denying the importance of everyday life or denying the decency of the world, and so much of art can be lost in the desire to organize life, uh, to make an intended picture or intended poem or consciously conceived novel, uh, to where the experience of life uh, itself is somehow lesser than uh, human beings attempt to perfect it or express it. Uh, I've had this issue myself because I have a great devotion to both religion and to art. But I see in both of them the expression of the sacredness of everyday life and the depth of everyday life, and that if you cannot um, accept everyday life, then there's almost no point to your religion or your art. And one of the best uh, proofs, at least for me, of this uh, comes not from novels, not from poetry, not from uh, religious scripture, but from interviews, from nowadays podcasts, or from anything, diaries, uh, anything at all that gives us the voice of one person talking about their life, simply, eloquently. And very often, at least for me, this almost destroys completely my need to write poetry, let alone to read it, or my desire to turn it into fiction, which is what I've always tried to do. And uh, one of my favorite writers in this respect is Studs Terkel, who you might say wasn't a writer at all so much as an organizer. He left us a handful of books, at least a dozen, I think, of oral histories of living in America in the 20th century, where he went around and interviewed people Uh, later typed it all out, edited it down, and released them as books. And in 1980, he published a book called American Dreams, Lost and Found. And for my money, the few pages he devotes to a man living in Minnesota named Andy Johnson uh, are a novel in themselves and would probably be better than an entire novel that anyone would attempt to write off of just these four pages. Uh, Just listen to the 
humanity that is immediately right here. And even if you uh, disagree with the politics that comes in at the end, um, I still don't see how that uh, takes away from the basic humanity of this story. Listen to this. The poorest, the most miserable came here because they had no future over there. To them, the streets of America were paved in gold. They had what the Finns called kume, the American fever. I was born in Finland and came here in 1906. My father was the son of a tenant farmer, rocky soil. He didn't see any future in it. The Russo-Japanese War came along. He was going to be drafted in the army, so he beat it out of there as fast as he could. My father was a typical Christian and conservative when he came here, and for a long time after. In our bedroom we had a picture of Christ on one wall and Tsar Nicholas II on the other. I remember something about the revolution of 1905 in Russia and Finland. The assassination of the governor general of Finland appointed by the Tsar. Our neighbors had rifles with fixed bayonets. I didn't understand what it was about, but I could sense attention. I remember how they were jabbing this bayonet into the ground, trying it out. We started off on a wooden ship. It was built of rough oak timbers, no paint on them or nothing. It had a mast in case they ran out of steam. They had a bullpen, one big room for most of them. The women and children had smaller quarters where you just crawled into bunks. The North Sea is always stormy. You get those sugar, life sugar loaf type waves so the boat would rock. They got sick, all those people in one big room vomiting. Mother took salt fish from home. When we started getting seasick, you'd cut a slice of that fish and eat it. We went across England by train, then from Liverpool to New York City. It was a Cunard liner, the Lucania. That was a big boat. When we came to New York Harbor, everybody got out on deck to see the Statue of Liberty. My mother picked me up and held me so I could see it. There was a doctor at Ellis Island, and he took a spoon and shoved it in my eye, along with the others, to see if we had any illness. Those that had were returned. We rode on a train for days on end. We came through some beautiful country. A lot of times I thought we should stop here. We shouldn't go any further. But we came to New York Mills, Minnesota, a Finnish community. My father was working on the railroad there. He came two years before. We met him, and it was kind of emotional. Coming to America was like being transferred from one century to another. The change was so great. They bought a bunch of bananas, which I hadn't seen before. I ate too many of them, and I got sick. I swore off bananas. I didn't eat one for at least ten years. I saw the first black man in my life on the platform at the Union Station in Duluth. I couldn't figure out why his face was black. I thought he didn't wash it or something. It didn't dawn on me at that time that people were different. I remember at my grandfather's place reading about Africa and the missionaries. The only literature we had was the Bible and a missionary magazine. 
In this magazine, there was a picture of black people tied together by their hands, one to the other with chains, and there was a big husky white man with a horsewhip. I didn't like the looks of that picture. I asked my aunt, why are those people chained? She said, they're slaves, but she didn't explain much further. As soon as we got settled, my folks bought a Bible. They didn't bring it from the old country like a lot of other people did. So I started to read the Bible and learned to read Finnish. I got interested in it, but the stories were so wild and frightening to me. When I was about 13, I got in contact with lumberjacks who had different ideas from my father's. I began to think about things, and my father did the same. He began to read the Finnish paper called Tayomis. It was left-wing. When somebody first brought it to him, he took a stick from the wood box and carried the paper with that stick and put it in the stove. But soon after World War I started, he was reading it himself, and his views began to change. Father got a job at the Miller Mine. He'd come directly home with his mining clothes. Mother didn't like it at all. She didn't like the surroundings, the strange people. Most of the timber had been cut, and everything was a mess. Iron ore on the roads instead of gravel. And when it rained, the stuff would splatter all over. Father quit his job and got a job at Mohawk Mine. I was supposed to start school, but something happened. He either got fired or quit, and he was sent to Adriatic Mine. At the Adriatic, you had Slovenians and Italians and Finns. They all spoke a strange language. They couldn't understand each other, and the company liked it that way. Some houses were company-owned, some privately. When we first came here, they were about six feet high, made out of poles stuck in the ground and box boards nailed to the posts and tar paper over that. I don't think they had any floor. The following summer they built a school, and my sister and I started. Learning English was a little difficult, although when you start playing with other kids, you'd be surprised how fast you learn. I never finished seventh grade because the snow melted too soon. I went to school altogether less than five winters. There was the booms and the busts. We'd go from one to the other. About 1912, things began to slow down. By 1914, they were pretty bad, until World War I started. We moved out to the country, got a homestead. The government was still giving free land, so we moved out there in the wilderness. Father got a job in the logging camp as a blacksmith. Mother did some laundry for the bosses. That helped us a lot that winter. When the big logging camps came in, they brought the railroads. My father had been a miner, a carpenter, a farmer, a common laborer. When a person moves so many times from one year, from one job to another, there's reasons for it. He wasn't happy with what he was faced with. When he began reading these papers and talking to people about capitalism and exploitation, he began to see and change his mind. I didn't pay much attention to politics until I was in the neighborhood of 30. When things got tough in the 30s, I began to express my views. I had a good job then, working for the county. Every morning, 
the boss would pick out certain guys and give him a day's work. The guys that didn't get any work would pass under my window, so we got to talking. Well, they started pointing the finger at me. The county commissioner called me into the office and warned me about talking the way I talk. I had my independence, except that it made my livelihood a little more difficult. That's the way it's been up to this day, and I don't think it'll change. When you're once fired for your political views, you're automatically blackballed with the mining companies, even if you never worked for a mining company. The superintendent of the mine was the mayor at one time. Your American dream, he asks, Studs Turkle. You got a terrible-looking hole down in the ground where we used to live once. It's filled with water, and the wealth is taken out of the land. I don't know what it's good for. On the other hand, people live in nice houses. They're painted well. There's jobs for those that have jobs, and there are a lot of people on welfare in this county. I see a wonderful future for humanity, or the end of it. If we continue this present trend, we're going to go straight to hell. We're going to blow ourselves right off this earth, or we'll poison ourselves off. It's up to the people. What bothers me is that they're not concerned. I don't know how to approach them. For 45 years, I've written a letter to the newspaper. I've tried to get one every month to at least one paper. That's the only thing I'm able to do. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.